According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me this morning, if you would, in the book of Genesis. Easy enough to find. It's the first book in your Bible, the book of Genesis. We are in chapter 22, though, so you may have to flip a few pages to uh, get to the 22nd chapter. This is the chapter where Abraham is commanded to uh, offer his son as a burnt offering, a very famous chapter in the Bible, one that is difficult and one that actually uh, they have made a, uh, a, a video, they made a movie out of this, and you can get it on Amazon Prime called His Only Son, and it's, uh, it's an interesting uh, production. Watched it the other day and thought, hmm. Uh, I wouldn't have done it that way. They made some, they made some artistic license uh, interpretive choices that they made in, in portraying uh, the different characters, and I thought they were brutal, very hard on uh, Sarah especially, and, uh, and maybe not as hard on Abraham as they should have been. So that was, that was my takeaway. So um, Not to spoil it for anyone, but uh, watch it for yourself, and if, uh, if you have a, the same opinion I do, let me know that I thought they were pretty unfair to, uh, to Sarah. In, uh, in that portrayal. All right. Genesis 22. Before we do start, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father in His faithfulness. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's humble ourselves before His throne. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you just so thankful for your truth, thankful for the living and abiding Word of God. Thank you for the Scriptures. Father, these, uh, these living texts that were written thousands of years ago, but they're as alive and powerful today as they, as they have ever been. Father, I thank you for the uh, encouragement of Scripture that uh, builds us up and gives us the hope that we need day by day and moment by moment. Father, I thank you for the example of Abraham and Isaac in this chapter that we're reading. It is such a picture of you and your son and a picture of what you did on the cross when you sent your son to die that we might have eternal life. So I pray that we learn these lessons. I pray that we appreciate them and that we become bold in our evangelism as we tell this lost and dying world about the son that was sacrificed on our behalf. So, Father, again, I want to thank you for this doctrine. Open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So, um, it came about after these things, and it's uh, a little bit awkward to try to introduce 21 chapters of Genesis to uh, kind of set the table for this, but everything that leads up to this chapter, you, you have to keep it in mind, and consider how many years has it been. Abraham and Sarah waited decades. He was 100 years old when Isaac was born. Sarah was 90 years old when Isaac was born. How old were they when they got married? Well, we, we're not, the Bible doesn't tell us, but we can, uh, we can estimate and guesstimate and assume uh, that they were married in Ur of the Chaldees and that they traveled together up to Haran, that they did depart Haran uh, when Abraham was 70. And so whatever the years were prior to that and how long they'd been married prior to that, we don't entirely know, but we can guess. Um, as the case may be, uh, they, they relocate from Haran down to Canaan and then to Egypt and back to Canaan. We've been dealing with many of their travels uh, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. And so we've had several chapters now where this son of promise has been promised but not yet here. And uh, so much so that because of the delay and the struggle with faith, 
that uh, they decided, well, maybe God needs help in keeping his promises. And maybe, uh, maybe the problem is Sarah. Maybe the problem is not Abraham. And so they came up with an idea, and it was Sarah's idea, that if she gave Abraham her handmaiden, that, uh, so he would now have a second wife, that maybe his handmaiden as a concubine could uh, have a baby that Sarah couldn't have. And uh, so they tried it, and it worked, and they had a baby, and that's how Ishmael was born. But that was not the plan of God, and that was not in the will of God in, in terms of the promise that he had made. And so when God makes a promise, he does not need our help to keep his promises. Amen? I hope we're good with that, because God has made lots of promises, like our eternal life is a promise that God has made, that whoever believes in Jesus Christ should not perish but have everlasting life. And does God need help? Does he need our help? Keeping that promise. No. He doesn't need our help keeping any promises. He made the promise. He makes good on his promises. And so we are dealing with a circumstance here where they wait all of these years, 100 years old, to have a son. And then he gets this son. And again, it's not entirely clear what the time frame is on this. It says after these things. In the earlier chapter, we saw where Isaac had been weaned. So, you know, you can estimate the age when a baby is weaned, no longer nursing, no longer being uh, breastfed by his mother. And, um, you know, different traditions from the age of two to the age of five. And, of course, some babies are weaned even earlier than two, depending on other issues that, that might be there. The fact is, we don't know. Okay? We don't know Isaac's age at this point, but he is carrying wood and he is asking intelligent questions. And that's enough for us to realize that he's not an infant, he's not a toddler, he is a, a, a child and, or a lad, as the translation has it. But this is how the chapter begins. God tested Abraham. Important for us to know that. And for the reader reading this chapter, we know at the very top that it's a test. We know at the very top that uh, the command to, uh, to offer up your son is a test. And it's important for the reader to know. Abraham does not know that. Abraham believes God wants him to kill his son. And then he proceeds on that basis. So he says, Hanini, here I am. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And we've discussed this and how immediate was Abraham's obedience that he rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him. Those characters get developed quite a bit in that show I was telling you about on Amazon Prime. Um, takes these two young men with him. And Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now, God didn't tell him exactly where, but he did tell him the land. It's like, you know, go to Texas, and when you get there, you'll get more instructions. And then you show up, and you're like, this is a pretty big place here, Lord. We're, you know, and, and yet, yeah, it turns out you're, you're in Beaumont. You're supposed to be in El Paso, so you're not, even, you're not even close, right? But you get to the land of Moriah, not as big as Texas. You get to the land of Moriah, and once you're there, then you will see the location. And so he gets there, and it's on the third day that he arrives. He raises his eyes, and he sees the place from a distance. And I love this. I love the imagery, the Bible doctrine that connects to all things that happen on the third day, like with uh, Jonah in the whale for three days, like Jesus in the grave for three days. We're about to have Easter at the end of this month, and that's the, the, uh, the recognition that Jesus died on Friday and was raised again on Sunday. And uh, we'll be celebrating that, of course, with um, 
uh, on uh, with a potluck actually on uh, March the 31st. Anyway, on the third day, he raises his eyes and he sees the place from a distance. And so he says to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. And so there are certain tasks, there are certain work assignments that the father gives that are limited in who is expected to achieve these duties. And when it comes to this particular work assignment and this particular duty, it is limited to the father and the son that he loves. And that is there for a reason. There cannot be a servant in the picture. There cannot be a donkey in the picture. The picture is a transaction between the father and the son and them alone. Because remember, the doctrine that they're teaching here is the doctrine of the cross. It's the doctrine of God the Father and Jesus Christ and the work that Jesus did when he went to the cross. I think that is so vital for us to learn. And, and that gets lost with a lot of Bible stories. It gets lost with a lot of denominations and churches. They, get, uh, they want to be preaching about different things. And the Jewish religious leaders or the Roman centurion or anything they want to talk about as far as who crucified the Christ. Missing the point that he was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That it was God the Father that gave his only begotten Son. Remember, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And so the transaction is between a father and the son that he loves. The unique son. The one-of-a-kind son. The son that is unique, that there is none like him. And this is true. Even though Ishmael does exist, Isaac remains the unique son the promised son, the miracle son. Same thing with Jesus. You know, there are, there are angels that are called B'nai Ha Elohim. There are angels that are called sons of God. There are even angels that are called Elohim. They're called gods, little g, gods in the angelic realm. But only God the Son is the uniquely born Son of God, the only begotten Son. And so there is the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And that's what this chapter pictures. We have the Father who loves the Son. Take now your son, your uh, only son, the son whom you love. And I believe I mentioned that a week ago, a couple weeks ago. How long have we been in this chapter? A while? Okay. On one of the Sundays that we were in this chapter, I mentioned the fact that this is the first time the word love ever appears in the Bible. That it takes 22 chapters to finally come across the word love. The Hebrew ahav in the, in the Bible. And it's here. Okay? And, and don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm sure that Abraham loved Sarah, and I'm sure that Adam loved Eve. I'm sure there was a lot of love in the Bible in the first 21 chapters, but the Bible doesn't record any of those loves. I'm sure they were there. Noah loved Mrs. Noah, okay? There was a lot of love, but they didn't get put in the Bible until this chapter. And that's for a very important theological reason, to show that the greatest love ever expressed happens at the cross. Okay? There's even a song that I like that says, I never heard a real love song until I heard about Jesus on the cross. Then, I, then now I finally I know what a love song is all about. And, uh, and I appreciate that. All right, so take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac. And so it's on the third day that he sees the place from the distance. He tells the young men, uh, stay here with the donkey. And I love the faith when he says, I and the lad will go over there. We will worship and we will return to you. That is such an extraordinary measure of faith because the worship that he's commanded to do is to kill his son. The worship that he's commanded to do is to offer up Isaac as a whole burnt offering. 
which means he has to be carved up into pieces, and he has to be burned, he has to be, that's, that's how a whole burnt offering works. Okay, for lambs, for bulls, for goats, for sheep. And in the case of human sacrifice, all right, this is uh, it's a horrible thing. And it's, it's actually prohibited under Mosaic law. And child sacrifice was very common to the Canaanites, but it's prohibited under Mosaic law. <coughs> Abraham, of course, is 400 years too early for Mosaic law. And so there is no Mosaic law. There's only Abraham's faith and his understanding that God is a God of goodness, that he's a God of righteousness, that he's a God of fairness. And if he is commanding a thing that is evil, then he has good reasons for doing so. Do we have to know those reasons? Or do we just have to trust that God has his reasons and do what we are expected to do? This is the test of faith. We will go over there and we will worship. We will return. And so even though Abraham has every expectation to sacrifice his son... He has also a consideration, according to the book of Hebrews, that God is able to bring back the dead. And there is the thought process that goes through the mind there that God is able to, I mean, if God could make a baby with a 100-year-old father and a 90-year-old mother, God is able to bring into existence that which does not exist, then God can certainly restore physical life to somebody that, that has died. He believes that's possible, even though it's never happened before. He believes it's possible. And he's right. Somebody is able to bring back the dead because that's what happens when Jesus dies on the cross and does not stay dead. He comes back on the third day. He's raised from the dead on the third day. So, tremendous faith. As we were running out of time last week, I was highlighting some things with Isaac in the conversation here in verse 7. I also need to point out, if you're visiting with us this morning, that the Bible is what you read on the right. That's the Bible, New American Standard Bible that I'm reading from. The notes on the left, those are my notes. All right, Those are my outlines, my notes, my points, my little preaching reminders so I don't miss something. Um, the notes on the left are not God-breathed and inspired. Okay, And uh, those jots and tittles can disappear tomorrow. Okay, It's the Bible that contains the eternal promises without a jot or tittle that will pass away. And don't, uh, don't confuse my notes with the Bible is what I'm trying to say. So uh, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. That tells you he's not a toddler. He's old enough to carry the wood. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. And this is what it's about. It's about walking together. Remember, Enoch walked with God. Abraham was a friend of God. Walking with God is significant. And here's father and son walking together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Hineni, here I am. The same Hineni that he offered earlier when the Lord called him. When the Lord said, Abraham, and, and now Isaac says, My father. In both cases, Abraham's response is, Hineni, behold, I am here. It's a, it's a present for action type of military response. Here I am, my son. And so Isaac says, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? It's another clue as to his age, that he's not as young as the infant or the toddler or the newborn or any young uh, age that he's often made out to be. In the, in the show I'm talking about on, on Amazon Prime, he looks to be about 14, 15, something like that, a, a young uh, a boy. <clears throat> He's old enough to realize something's missing here. He has a frame of reference. 
it's like, uh, you know, from the youngest of ages, our kids, and we're bringing them to church, or bringing them to Sunday school, and they learn, and they, 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 they learn what's normal, and they grow accustomed to how they grow up, and they grow accustomed to how they're trained. <clears throat> and so it's kind of interesting. They get, they get accustomed to how things work. You know, that this, is, this is the nursery, and this is the Sunday school, and this is where we get uh, snacks, things like that. You learn, as a small child, the way things are supposed to go. Isaac learned about burnt offerings. I'm sure he's seen hundreds of them, or dozens of them, depending on how old he is. And he says, all right, I'm carrying all this wood. My dad's got the fire. My dad's got the, uh, the knife. We're missing something here. Something's missing. This is like when the angels noticed something was missing and God created the earth. And Adam recognized something was missing, and so God created a woman. Okay? Took a rib out and said, here she is. It, when, when somebody notices that something is missing, it seems to happen a lot in the Bible, it becomes the, the venue, it becomes the occasion for God to say, all right, now watch this. It's a learning opportunity. And it's a learning opportunity for us and our humanity. It's also a learning opportunity for the angels that are watching us, as uh, many of these things are centered on. So, behold, the fire and the wood, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? So he's got enough of a uh, frame of reference to understand that it's missing. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself, or God will provide himself, the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Is that an answer or is that a dodge? It is an answer. It's an answer without full information because Abraham itself doesn't have the full information. And this is a clue too, by the way. Husbands, you know, you're trying to lead your wives and your wives are looking to you for leadership and, and you don't have all the answers. That's okay. What's not okay is just lying about it and faking it and winging it and trying to pretend like you know what you're doing. Okay? But just lead your wife in the faith exercise to say, God will provide. I don't know what He'll provide. I don't know where, when, why, or how. Well, I know why, because He's faithful. He will provide. And so Abraham, without knowing the specifics, has no doubt related to the reality that God will provide. So that's how he leads his family. That's how he leads his son. And that's how we lead our marriages and families and churches and, and every capacity of leadership God expects us to, to, uh, to walk this way on a faith basis. So the two of them walked on together, trusting in God the Father, together. And they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there. I kind of wonder, how long did he take? <laughs> did he stretch it out a little bit? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, he's built bunches of altars over the years, you know, but if, if, if building an altar takes about an hour, did, you know, did he stretch that out to two or three? or How slow was he at building that altar? And then he uh, arranged the wood. That probably took a little bit longer, too. And then he bound his son Isaac. Now, this is an interesting event um, the binding of Isaac. In fact, the verb to bind is the verb that the rabbis make the most significant on. They, they key in on this, and this, is, this becomes the title for the whole episode. The rabbis will call this the binding of Isaac, and that's, what they, that's what the, the title that they give to this, uh, to this chapter. And I find this interesting, because we had previously discussed the nature of a volitional service. Isaac's capacity for volitional participation... When he's asking that question, he wants that information so that he can be involved volitionally. 
And Abraham answers his question. He is walking side by side with his father. Now, he wasn't bound in, in Beersheba, and he wasn't bound all the way up to this point. God didn't, uh, Abraham didn't bind him and drag him all the way to Moriah. He walked himself, carried his own cross. But when it came, and Jesus carried his cross up until the point that he was nailed. And then an involuntary thing happened to him to keep him there as Jesus was nailed. Like I say, Jesus voluntarily went there and Jesus voluntarily carried the lumber, but he didn't nail himself. He allowed himself to be nailed. And Isaac now allows himself to be bound. Again, we're kind of guessing on his age. What would it have been like if he had to fight? <laughs> we don't know. You know, if, uh, if, he's, if he's 10 and Abraham's 110, you know, and if a 110-year-old man tried to tie you up with a bunch of ropes, how, uh, how, how easy are you going to make that for him? Or how hard is that going to be for him? Is it even possible? That would be very impressive if a 110-year-old man could, could put me in ropes. Okay, I'm just saying. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I don't know. Eight years of law enforcement. I put a handcuffs on a whole lot of people, and I can't imagine a 110-year-old man putting handcuffs on me, right? Or, or, or tying me up. Or, or If I didn't want to be bound, I don't think it would happen. All right. He binds his son and lays him on the altar on top of the wood. So the binding is the first step. The son submits to it. And then lifting him up and laying him on the altar is the second step. Isaac's uh, going along with it. And then he stretches out his hand and he takes the knife to slay his son. So he's got the knife in hand. Now whether or not it's in the downward motion, can't prove that. The text doesn't exactly say. It is a purpose. He takes hold, stretches out his hand, takes the knife to slay his son. And so that might indicate indeed the, the plunging motion is, is underway. But I think there's a lot that we want to see here on this. And the escape, the way of escape, okay? The way of escape, God is faithful. We claim this as a promise. He will not test us beyond what we're able to bear. With the testing, He provides the way of escape. He provides the ekbasis, the victorious conclusion to every test. And and in some respects, I'm not fond of the phrase way of escape. I don't like it simply because there's nothing wrong with it except our culture today. And and the worst thing about it is our culture is um, we're surrounded by escapism everywhere. Right? We have a culture where everybody is involved in escapism. In, in their drugs and alcohol and entertainment and all the escapism and the idea of escapism and, and also the idea of just bailing on everything, right? You bail on your family, you bail on your marriage, you bail on your job, you bail on... And it is, we, have a, we have a culture that just escapes from things they don't like. And, and that's not what we should be thinking about when we think about enduring our tests. When God puts us through a test, God gives us a... A test. God says, okay, uh, you, got, you now have bladder cancer. Okay? Do you love me? Do you, do you believe me? Do you trust me? And what's the way of escape? Does that mean the cancer gets healed? Does that mean I get better? Or does it mean I go to heaven? Alright? One of our Friday morning pastors uh, 
in the, in every Friday morning I'm on a Zoom call with about 30 pastors, and uh, one of our Friday morning Zoom pastors had a uh, Saturday morning promotion to glory. And uh, there was no clue that we were just chatting with him and everything seemed great on a Friday, and he was with the Lord on, on the very next Saturday, Saturday a week ago. And uh, this is what it's about. So our way of escape might be on this earth or it might be in glory. The ekbasis, the victorious conclusion. Because some, there is coming a test that the only uh, conclusion to that test is promotion, is our physical death. That's, a, that's our final test that we face in this world. Are we going to face it in faith or face it in fear? So, um, God will provide himself the lamb. That was Abraham's faith and that's what actually happened. God provided a substitute. And so, um, Abraham was spared even as Isaac was spared. Some of this language, too, as we read this, it's, it's useful to go ahead and go into the Gospels and read the story of Jesus and read as he was approaching the cross, the night before he went to the cross, the night before he was arrested, or the night that he was arrested, he was actually in the garden praying, and it crossed his mind that the next day wasn't going to be any fun. Okay? It crossed his mind that, wait a minute, and God was showing him, God was crushing him in the garden showing him every sin that he was going to accept, showing him the totality of what that work was going to be. And the more and more that it impressed upon him, the more and more that he sweat those great drops of blood. And he realized the anguish that he was feeling. And so in that anguish, it crossed his mind that maybe somebody else could do it. Maybe somebody else could take his place. Or maybe... No one would take his place and it just wouldn't get done. That'd be okay, wouldn't it? No, it wouldn't be okay. All right? But he says it out loud when he asks the Father. He says, Father, is it possible for this cup to pass by me? And by asking the Father, I think that's a beautiful pattern. Now, Jesus never sinned. Jesus never sinned. So if you're tempted to sin, and if you're, you're thinking about sinning, go take it to the Father and ask him about it. and <laughs> Talk to him about it. Say... What am I going to do here, Father? Okay? It's a great way to remind yourself that your Father loves you and He's got a plan. And you can say, not my will, but thine be done. And that's what Jesus had to do. And so here's Abraham. God will provide, and he takes his knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He doubles it up this time. And he said, here I am. And now he's rescued. He does not have to do it. And then the truth was, God didn't change his mind. God never intended for Isaac to die in the first place. But Abraham didn't know that. He didn't know the nature of the test. So, they're both actually spared. We, we usually think about this as the sparing of Isaac. It's really the sparing of Abraham and the sparing of Isaac. Because uh, what's worse? Being killed by your father or killing your son? You know, it's, it's bad to be killed by your father, I grant you, but you don't have to live with it afterwards. Did I say that right? Yeah, but the father who kills his son has to live with that afterwards. But they're both spared. And this is a, an interesting episode on this. So, um, yeah, it is a, it's a, it's a neat thing to think about. And then going forward again to the Gospels, and, and it is Christ-centered, and it is Christocentric, uh, but... Ask yourself, if the test was a test of Abraham's faith, and it was, 
And if Abraham is a type of God the Father, and he is, well then what was the Father's faith that the Father was exercising when the Father put the Son on the cross? That's a, that's a, that's a different theological issue. Okay? Does God exercise faith? Yes, he does. It is a curious thing. Especially in that interpersonal dynamic between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Remember, faith is not something we do because we're finite and we're weak. Okay? Faith is the placing of a confidence or the placing of a trust. And God does that all the time. You ever think about it that way? Think about the children He trusted you with. God entrusted those children to your care. Or the wife he entrusted to your care, should he give you a helpmate in marriage. Or other duties that he gives you to accomplish, God is entrusting to you spiritual duties. And that's a step of faith that God's taking when he entrusts those things to you. Anyway, um, there's more to go into active and passive and transitive aspects of, of faith. But this is a test for the Father. That's what I'm trying to emphasize this morning. The Son had some tests. Yes, he had, to, he had to obey. He had to submit. He had to lay there while his Father tied him up. Okay? And then, my guess is, he laid there silently because Jesus was silent before his shearers. Uh, the, the imagery, the typology is one of silence and faith in waiting. I don't think he was crying. I don't think he was screaming. I don't think he was yelling at his dad or calling him names. Okay, I think um, we have those types there. So yes, Isaac was being tested as he was about to die. I think he had whatever length of time. He didn't know he was going to die when the altar was being built. He didn't know he was going to die when the wood was being arranged. But when the ropes came on, <laughs> I think the jig is up. Right At that point, you are the sacrifice. You are the one. And from that moment on, how long was he bound? How long was he laying there? How long did he uh, watch that knife descend, right? And so for that short time, minutes, moments, whatever length of time that was, he was functioning in faith, waiting to die. On the other hand, Abraham, for three days, was waiting to kill his son. And by faith, for three days, was trusting in the Father for the whole journey, for the whole altar building, for the whole everything. Right up to the point that he grabs the knife. So Abraham built, arranged, bound, laid, stretched out, and took. There's a whole lot of verbs in uh, Genesis 22, verses 9 and 10. There's a whole lot of verbs there that all have Abraham as the subject of those verbs. Built, arranged, bound, laid, stretched out, and took. All of those verbs apply to the Father, not the Son. That's interesting. So while the typology is clearly Christological, the emphasis here is undoubtedly paterological. While the typology is clearly Christological, it's a picture of Jesus Christ. It's a, Christ, it's a Christological typology. Isaac is a type of Christ, but Abraham is a type of God the Father. And so when you do your theological studies, we know Christos is Christ, Pneumatos is Holy Spirit, the Pneuma is the Holy Spirit, okay? 
and pater is the Greek word for father. So all of our doctrines that apply to the Son we call Christology. All the doctrines that apply to the Holy Spirit we call pneumatology. And all the doctrines that apply to God the Father we call paterology. At least we call them that. The uh, systematic theologies you'll buy out there struggle. Most of them don't even have a, uh, in fact all of them, don't even have a paterology section. I dare you to find me one. And if you do find me one, buy it for me. <laughs> okay? It's going to be expensive. Anything that's a one-of-a-kind costs a lot of money. But Lewis Barry Schaefer, his eight-volume set, he had a Christology, he had a pneumatology. There was no paterology. Norman Geisler, we're doing Geisler right now. Four-volume set. There's a Christology, there's a pneumatology, there's not a paterology. This, this father doctrine is, is uh, undeveloped. And uh, I'm hoping, since I'm now in custody of the Ralph Braun notebooks, that uh, perhaps we'll get that in print at some point. So the typology is clearly Christological. The emphasis here is paterological. Earlier in the chapter, we had Elohim that was giving the initial call. But here it's the angel of the Lord that's interceding. And I make that as a note. I don't know what I can explain about it. But it is the angel of the Lord calling to him from heaven. The angel of the Lord, we understand, is God the Son. It's Jesus Christ b- before his incarnation. That the angel of the Lord, the, the Malach ha Yahweh, okay, the angel of the Lord, is not God the Father, is not God the Holy Spirit. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is God the Son. But all throughout here, it's always been God, Elohim. Elohim tested Abraham. And Abraham went to the place which Elohim had told him. And uh, Abraham tells uh, Isaac, Elohim will provide for himself the lamb. So they came to the place of which Elohim had told him. Now, it's the same God. It doesn't matter if you call him Elohim, or you call him Yahweh, or you call him El Elyon, or call him El Shaddai, or call him... He's got dozens of names. It's the same God, creator God of the universe. But the, the change from the basic generic Elohim to the very specific... Angel of the Lord. That gets my attention. Because this is now directly, this is now God the Son intervening. God the Son who keeps that knife from plunging. God the Son who says, here's the ram caught in the thicket. Here's the substitute that's going to take your place. And it's God the Son that ensures that Isaac the Son doesn't die. I find that interesting. So it's the angel of the Lord who testifies here. And and that's a whole study on its own all throughout Scripture. It's interesting. All throughout the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord uh, very often interacts with the Lord himself. And there's a dynamic there between the Father and the Son. The angel of the Lord speaks on behalf of the Lord. When the angel of the Lord says, God says. And so we understand it is God himself, the second member of Trinity, is the angel of the Lord. It's also curious how... The angel of the Lord is never seen again after the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. When Jesus Christ comes, born of a virgin, and lives his human life in a physical body, we don't get any additional angel of the Lord appearances beyond that. Okay, Two possible exceptions that I think are disputable in uh, later texts. All right. 
So the angel of the Lord calls to Abraham a second time from heaven. And he says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Now I've got to back up. Let me see. Yep, I'm missing something very important here. I went to the wrong angel of the Lord verse. Let's go back to verse 11. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, doubling up that first call with naming him twice. And he said, Hineni, here I am. It's the third time now that he said Hineni in this chapter. Once to Elohim, once to Isaac, and now the third time to the angel of the Lord. And he said, as the Lord says, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Again, we're guessing his age based upon that noun. And do nothing to him. That's two different things. Do not stretch out your hand against the lad. And then secondly, do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. You have not withheld your monogenes, your only begotten, your one of a kind, your unique son. And so Abraham has passed the test. Abraham has demonstrated his faith. And this becomes important too. Now that I know... For now I know. Does that bother you? If so, I'll fix it before you leave. You won't be bothered anymore if it bothers you now. Okay? It does. It bothers a lot of folks. Uh, there's concepts here. Um, there's also concepts that we've dealt with in earlier chapters. Uh, when the Lord said he was sorry that he ever made man, so he sends a flood in Genesis chapter 6. Those kind of verses, um, they can bother some people. This verse can kind of bother some people. For now I know that you fear God. It, on the surface, as you read that, you might be tempted to think that, well, before this chapter, there was something God didn't know. Before this chapter, uh, God was, was um, uh, ignorant. And then that's a problem. Okay, How do you have an ignorant God when God is described as omniscient? God knows everything. So if God knows everything, what's this verse about? How does a God who knows everything know something that he didn't know before? Because he says, now I know. All right? And that bothers folks. In fact, it leaves some folks uh, horrible places. There's a whole branch of theology um, seemingly gathering momentum. I don't understand why, uh, except for Satan will always promote horrible things. But there is, it's called open theism. that says God does not know everything. That God is learning while he watches what we do. No, it's the angels that are learning while they watch what we do. God knows these things already. God is, is teaching the angels. Because he, he already knows. And so we don't want to confuse omniscience with other things. Because omniscience is more than we think it is. God knows what we will do and God knows what we won't do. But we might do if, if other things happen first. God knows every what if, and, and it, which is more than what happens. The angels can't see the what ifs. They just see what happens. And so they learn based on what happens. But God knows all the what ifs, including all the things that never happen, because he takes us in different places. But there's a different kind of knowing. And I love this. Even an omniscient God, even the omniscient God, can still testify to a shared knowledge gained through the testing and perfecting of justified faith. I'm going to say that again. I'm going to read that three or four times. 
because I think I rewrote it 20 times. Okay, I'm going to read it here three or four times, and I want us to be clear on this. Even the omniscient God can still testify to a shared knowledge gained. And this points to the fact that we know different things in different ways. There are different ways to have knowledge. There are different ways to acquire knowledge. There are different kinds of knowledge. The, the, the knowledge that and the knowledge how to. There's different kinds of knowledge. Okay? I know that. There's an engine under my hood, but I don't know how it does what it does. <laughs> okay? The salesman said, you want to look at the engine? No? Why would I do that? I drove it already. It drives real fast. I assume there's an engine under there. It's one of those faith things. We drive by faith, not by sight. There's different ways to know things. And to know that something is true, to know how something works, to know how to do something. All kinds of knowledge. God has all of them. He has every form of knowledge. That's part of omniscience. And the additional acquisition of knowledge. Just because you know it doesn't mean you can't know it in a different way. Right? And and I think this is why we have the difference between position and experience. Positional justification and experiential justification. We have the difference in how things are known. And, and yes, he knows that Abraham has the faith to do it. He knew that three days ago. He knew that before the foundation of the world. He knew that from eternity past. That Abraham would pass this test on this day. Or you think it was a coincidence that he just happened to pick the right guy when he picked Abraham. Okay? He knew who he was picking and how these tests would be passed. But he can still gain, that's gained, a shared knowledge gained through the testing and perfection of justified faith. You see it in action and you know it in a different way. It's like things that you know academically and then things that you know through experience. Things that you know through... So you learn. You learn in Bible class. Uh, the, The Scripture says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And you know that. But then you go through a test in your faith. And you see it. Because God does not leave you nor forsake you. And He walks with you through that test. And you now have a shared knowledge. Because you know it, God knows it, the angels know it, other people know it, Uh, Abraham and Isaac know it. When they get back to the servants and the donkey, they're going to know it. Okay, So there's a shared knowledge Amongst us, amongst the angels, because they're watching us, amongst God Himself. As God interacts with us through our testing, He leads us. We're yoked with Jesus Christ. The Father is working in you to willing to do of His good pleasure. The Spirit is working in you. Convicting and leading and teaching and guiding and empowering all that you do. So He says, now that I know This is a shared knowledge gained through the testing and perfecting of justified faith. And this is why James chapter 2 is not a problem, and James chapter 2 does not conflict with Romans. 
because we're apples and oranges when we're discussing positional truth versus experiential truth. When we're discussing justification by faith. No works. Justification by faith with works. Because faith without works is dead. Different ways of knowing, different ways of demonstrating. I think some of these principles come out here as well. So it's like uh, in, in any relationship that grows, in any dynamic, when, when you have people that are functioning together, the only way that you learn is by going through those things together and you learn more about those other people. <laughs> okay, your church family. You know more about your church family because of the things that God puts us through. You learn more about your, your marriage based upon the things God puts you through. And, and, and uh, <laughs> you learn things more permanently. See, do, do the actions speak louder than words? What works? Flowers and a card on Valentine's Day? The words that say, I love you? Or the actions, the deeds, the demonstration, the living sacrifice? That's not uh, romantic love, but it's agapao, sacrificial love. As Christ loved the church, as the Father so loved the world. And so, you know, based upon what you see, based upon what gets done, based upon the actions. And this is how God is declaring, I know now that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. It is evident, I have observed it, I have seen it, and you've seen it, and the angels have seen it. Your son has seen it. It's important that everybody involved sees it. And this is a, a different kind of knowledge. All right? And it doesn't deny the omniscience. Just because he knew it ahead of time does not deny the fact that he sees it in the here and now. And that he's, he's walking with us through these tests in the here and now. And so really, this is what it comes down to when you get to justification by works in the book of James. James chapter 2. It's not a contradiction with justification by faith in Romans. Both are true. Don't, uh, don't decide that one is true and the other is, is inexplicable. That's, that's where Martin Luther ended up. Martin Luther did not like the book of James. And he called it a right starry epistle. He couldn't quite keep it out of his Bible, but he didn't know what to do with it. So we'll just push it near the back. People don't usually get that far in their reading anyway. And we'll put, we'll put Galatians up front. We'll put Romans up front. We'll put Corinthians up front. Anyway. Um, so this is the, the, the famous chapter here in terms of faith and works. And um, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Now that's not to get saved. Nothing in this chapter is about receiving eternal life and becoming saved. This is a chapter about saved ones, believers, that are already positionally justified, and how are they working out that faith in their Christian walk experience? Are you producing any fruit? Are you bearing any works? Are you doing anything in your faith? Or are you just happy to be saved and waiting to die and go to heaven? So you can show up in heaven with nothing to your name. No treasure laid up. No nothing stored away. So someone might, uh, he says, faith without works is dead, being by itself. It's an empty thing. It's a dead thing. It's a separated thing. Someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works. I will show you my faith by my works. 
It's an interesting thing when it comes to intangibles. How do you see something that's an intangible? Well, I can tell you I have it. But then, can I see it? How can I see it? I can see it if I'm doing something with it. Then you can see that faith. And that's the point of what James is saying here in his hypothetical debate that's happening here. I will show you my faith by my works. So, uh, he says, with Abraham here, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? And there's a lot you've got to deal with in that verse. Because really, Abraham didn't offer up Isaac, his son, on the altar. He, he was rescued. He offered up a, a ram in its place. Isaac didn't have to die. Except, in his mind, he already did it. Abraham actually offered up Isaac, because he had every intention of doing it, when he took that knife in the hand, his intention was doing it. And so mentally, right, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, what did Jesus say? You've already done it. You done did it in your heart before you, you know, did it in the bed. Okay? There's the, there's the mental attitude that wants to do it, that decides to do it, that says, I'm doing that. So you're already carnal, out of fellowship, walking in darkness, before you even do the deed. Same with Abraham killing Isaac. He, he killed Isaac in his heart, in his mind, in his faith, in his obedience to the Lord. When he took that knife in hand, he was doing it. And so he did it. And in doing it, he was justified. And he was justified by works. Justified by works. Now, I don't know why people have trouble with this and they struggle. To me, it's pretty self-evident that this episode, when we say he was justified by works, what we're not saying is that this was the moment of Abraham's salvation. Not at all. Not even close. Abraham has been a believer for decades. He's been a believer for uh, close to 100 years. Okay? The, the Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteous. That went back. It was, it was written in chapter 15, but it applied to chapter 11. He's been a believer for a long, long time. But now we start to see that justified is used in different ways. The justified by works. That's a believer living out his faith. But the justified to get saved at the moment that, you, that someone gives you the gospel and you're positionally justified... There's no works at all for that. There can't be. So the justification for salvation is no works. The justification after salvation has to have works. Or else it's, it's a dead faith and there's no justification. Maybe it also helps to ask yourself, justified in whose sight? Because to be justified in the sight of God... God alone is a positional issue to be declared righteous, to, to have uh, your sins imputed to Christ's account, to have his righteousness imputed to your account, to be positionally uh, transferred from uh, darkness into light, from the kingdom of Satan to the dominion of God's beloved Son. In other words, to get saved. Okay? The only, that's, that, that's a positional justification that is justified in the sight of God and God alone. In his eyes, he looks at you and says, redeemed, saved by the blood of the Lamb. But the works justification in our experience, in our Christian walk, that's in the sight of everybody. My sight, your sight, my wife's sight, my kid's sight, the angels, my enemies, everybody. 
watching the works, watching the fruit, watching the, the, uh, the outworking of the faith. And it's in the sight of everybody, and it has to be. And so that's justified in the sight of everybody, God included, but everybody else as well. So you see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected or completed. Until the works are done, you can say, I believe. Abraham can say, yeah, I believe you, Lord. I'll go kill my son. But how good is that, right? Peter said, I'll never deny you. And look what he did. Before the rooster crowed, he denied him three times. So Abraham was justified by faith. Peter, not so much. Okay? Peter um, was not justified in that uh, denying rooster crowing episode. And so, Abraham's faith was perfected. Peter's faith was not. Not till later. He learned his lesson later. I think it's so gracious of the Lord that he comes to him and they have that morning fish fry thing, breakfast going on. And, and that Jesus then asked him three times, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And um, kind of made him mad by that third time. But I think it was, it was just total grace because... He, he allowed for the three denials to get chucked out the window with the three I love you statements. And, and uh, anyway, there's, there's more to do with that. So, Scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In other words, there's two different kinds of justification. Positional, experiential. Justification for salvation and justification in the experience, the outworking of our faith. Two different kinds. And so that's not a, a contradiction at all. It does not deny that to get saved, no works. You're justified by faith alone in, in, uh, in Christ alone. No question on that. And I love the fact, you ever look at these cross-references here? This originally comes from Genesis 15.6. But Genesis 15.6 is also referenced in Romans 4.3. Both Romans and James quote the same Genesis 15.6 to prove their point. That Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And Paul proves the positional justification, while James proves the experiential justification. And they both use the same proof text. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So what do we say about Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? What has he found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. See, he didn't work to get saved. Nobody can. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. It's faith alone, no works. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but what is due? If you're working for something, that's not grace. If you're working for something, you've earned it. You've deserved it. Go get your paycheck. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that's another clue. You've got to know it's positional truth because you're justifying the ungodly. Back in James, you were justifying the godly, the believer. The one that was already positionally just is now being justified experientially. But here... Believing in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. 
So this is our gospel. You can't work for eternal life. You can't work to get saved. The positional justification is faith alone, no works. Book of James, experience. Experiential justification. That's not the justification of the ungodly, it's the justification of the godly as a demonstration of faith. Both are actually true. So positional justification by faith alone, apart from works, experiential justification, sometimes that's called sanctification in theology textbooks, demonstrates faith, demonstrates faith through the works of faith. Those works are works of faith. They're not human good works. They're not works of human effort. They're not works of uh, quenching the Holy Spirit and doing what you want to do. They are works of faith. Led by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Works of faith. I hope this is clear. Sometimes we like to draw pictures. We put a cross and we put a line. Sometimes that's worth doing. And, and if the diagram sticks in your mind, it's, uh, it's a, it's a takeaway. Also, uh, everybody loves my artwork. You know what? I already have it right there. I see an earlier drawing. So you have the cross at phase one. And, and that's when you're positionally justified. That's your positional justification right there. Positionally justified. Then you have your walk after the cross. Because for a lot of us in this room, I don't know when you got saved, maybe it was not that long ago, you're, you're fairly new in your walk, but for me, it's, it's been over 50 years. So this was a long time ago, and there's been a whole lot of experiential justification ever since. Again and again and again, every time I walk by faith, every time I do a work of faith, then in the eyes of man, in the eyes of other people, that can be observed and there is an experiential justification that happens in phase two. We call this phase one, phase two. And then guess what? I'm not going to be here forever. None of us are. There's a point that I'm either going to physically die or be raptured when the church is raptured. But there is a point when, uh, when I will be departing planet Earth to be face-to-face with Jesus Christ. And this is called phase three. This also has a justification-sanctification aspect. It's called glorification. When we are ultimately, this is positional, this is experiential, this is ultimate. Say, Pastor, your, your drawing is okay, but your handwriting is awful. Ultimate sanctification. Okay? Positional, experiential, and ultimate. And ultimately, the justification comes because we stand before the Father's throne and I'm not guilty. Okay? My payment was made in full. Somebody else paid my price. I am declared righteous. And I can stand before the Father declared righteous. That's why all those jokes are so stupid. You know the jokes I'm talking about? Somebody dies and gets to St. Peter at the pearly gates and this dumb question, why should I let you into my heaven? That's the dumbest thing in the world. I hate those jokes. I want to just reach through that joke and slap St. Peter around and say, get out of my way. I have every right to be here and you have no right to question that. You know, like you're some kind of judge. Oh, I forgot. He was given the keys and he's the Pope. And Okay, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. All right, we've got to wrap this up.
the um, this text is among the most vivid theological presentations of penal substitutionary atonement. And this is what we'll get into next week. Coming back to Genesis 22, then let's get back to Abraham and Isaac. Haven't lost my focus. So, um, he says, Now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Okay. Now notice, he doesn't say, All right, game over, you can go home now. There's still a required sacrifice. A sacrifice is required, but look behind you. So Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him, was it there the whole time and he just never saw it? Or did God just put it there as a miracle? I mean, how did that get there? I never saw that. Was that there the whole time? Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in place of his son. So notice, a sacrifice is still required, but God is willing to accept a substitute. It has to be the right substitute, it has to be the appropriate substitute. The one that God designs, in this case, the ram caught in the thicket, was designed to be the Isaac substitute. And so, uh, Isaac lives and the ram dies. Does that seem fair? Why does somebody have to die so I can live? These are principles we'll get to next week. We talk about the penalty. That's the penal part of penal substitutionary atonement. There is a penalty that must be paid. Righteousness must be satisfied. It can't just be waved off and say, oh, well, that's okay. I love you. You can be whatever. No, there's a payment for sin. Sin is accountable. So next week we'll address that as well. But there's the substitute. There's the substitute, and thank God, because Jesus is my substitute. He's your substitute as well. He's everybody's substitute if you place your faith in him for eternal life. He's your substitute. If you don't place your faith in him, then you don't have a substitute. You can continue on just trusting yourself or trusting your goodness or trusting your religion or trusting whatever you're trusting. Or maybe you think the whole Bible thing is goofy and, and, and really you think uh, the, the Book of Mormon's a better Bible or the Quran's a better Bible or something else out there. If you're going to trust anything except Jesus Christ, then you don't have a substitute. And the wages of sin is death. And so place your faith in the wrong object, you will die and go to hell. Place your faith in Jesus Christ, and the gift of God is eternal life. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you for this truth. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for the exclusivity of truth. And I thank you, Father, that our Savior declared that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to you but through him. And we appreciate this, Father. We appreciate the willingness of Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son. We thank you for the picture that portrays of you and your son on on the cross. And we thank you, Father, that... uh, Although Isaac was given a a ram in the thicket, Jesus had no such ram in the thicket. There was no one that could be his substitute because he was everybody's substitute. And I pray that we understand these things, that we declare these things, that we defend these things. Especially, Father, in our generation, it seems as if a spirit of uh, wickedness is spreading and it seems as if there's a sense of a plurality and a pluralism mindset 
that wants to just water down your righteousness and say God loves everybody and it doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus or not, if you're, you can still be a good person. All of those lies are from the pit of hell, Father, and you know that, we know that. I pray that we can faithfully testify to that. Father, uh, again, I'm mindful of some recent events and the funeral I preached a couple weeks ago, and just, it just, um, I'm struck, Father, at how lost some people are thinking that they're so good. So, Father, I pray for a clear gospel message every time, all day, every day, that we are no good. We are sinners in Adam and we need a Savior. If anyone is present here this morning without Christ, without hope, without eternal life, I pray that this day can be the day that they will stop trusting in false idols and turn to Jesus Christ. It's free. He paid it all. Freely given. Freely received. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.